Good morning, and um, I'm excited you're here. Luke chapter 2, losing Jesus is what we're talking about this morning, and so turn with me to Luke chapter 2. All right, so um, I don't know if you've ever been lost, but I remember the first time, at least the first time I remember being lost, and that was um, when I was two years old. And I remember this very clearly. We were camping at Stanley Lake. My, my dad was trying to keep us occupied. And so he gave us some uh, items, scavenger hunt items. You need to find these items. And my sister was four, I was two. And we went off looking for like certain colored rocks and, and pine cones, you know, big pine cones and small pine cones and fishing line and some other things that were on this list of things that we were supposed to find. And um, we're just looking for a pine cone, my sister and I. And all of a sudden, she starts to cry. And I looked up at her, and she has this horrified look on her face. And, and, I, and I said, what? And she said, Michael, we're lost. And I looked around, and there was just big bushes everywhere. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see my parents. I couldn't see camp. I, I mean, we're in the forest, completely lost. And so I started to cry. And um, all of a sudden, the bushes start to she- shake, and, and, and like it's going to be a bear or something, and it's my dad. And he comes, and he picks us both up. And, and from that perspective, as we're lifted up above the ground, I could see camps like 10 feet away. We were just behind a bush. <laughs> But when you're two, you know, I mean, what do you do? Um, The only thing that's scarier than being a child who is lost is being a parent who has lost your child. Terrifying to lose a child or to to be looking for your children and have no idea where they are. And that's what we're going to see today. And and that's in Luke chapter 2. So if you're able, will you stand with me for the word of the Lord? Just giving honor to God's word. Luke chapter 2. Verse 41, it says, His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then they went down, or they went down, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And Father, we thank you for this passage, Lord, and just this snapshot into the childhood of Jesus. I pray that you would just be with us and speak to us, Lord that we would find application, that we would have ears to hear what you're saying to us, Lord. And Lord, that if we've lost you, we would find you as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, Luke um, has been a fun book to go through so far. We saw the announcement of Jesus' birth. We saw the birth of John the Baptist, the miraculous birth of Jesus with the angels and the shepherds coming to, to see the baby Jesus in the manger. 
Um, we, we saw Jesus being brought at 40 days old, being brought to the temple for his dedication and Simeon and Anna um, prophesying over him. And, and just kind of a, an interesting thing is Luke kind of gives us a little bit about Jesus's childhood. Not much, but certainly more than any of the other gospels. Of course, Matthew does um, solely record the wise men who came to Bethlehem to meet the child Jesus. Of course, he was a small child at that time, um, not at the manger scene, but rather it was later. Later, when he was one to two years old, the, she- the, the wise men would come um, to Bethlehem and see Jesus. But now Jesus is 12. And, and Luke is the only one who gives us anything about Jesus' childhood, whatever. I mean, there's, there's no other account, really, and, and no other words from Jesus' childhood except for in the Gospel of Luke, and literally is just one line that we're, got, we're given. But through this one little snapshot of Jesus' life in his childhood, we really get um, a picture, and can, we can actually come to a lot of conclusions and a lot of understanding about his childhood based on just this one encounter. Um, And and so as we saw last time, and this was maybe confusing to us, or maybe our preconceived ideas about who Jesus was or what he was as a child, um, were kind of um, challenged a little bit as we looked at verse 40, when it said, and the child grew, that's normal, and became strong in spirit, when you go from weak to strong, that's a little weird, filled with wisdom, and, and of course, empty to full, right? And the grace of God was upon him. And now I think we, we just, we kind of believe, I think sometimes, and if we ever read any of the apocryphal stories of Jesus's childhood, um, and they're pretty fanciful, you know, everything from Jesus touching a clay bird that somebody made and it coming alive and flying away and, and Jesus um, speaking from the manger to the wise men as they came and, you know, talking philosophy with them. And, and we, we read these things and there's, there's a few of them out there that are, are kind of interesting and like, wow, what would it have been like to be raising Jesus? And yet we really find nothing of that in Jesus' childhood. In fact, it says that he was filled with wisdom. It says that he grew in in understanding and these types of things. And so we understand that Jesus, as a man, had emptied himself, or, or I guess more appropriately to say he set aside all that he was in form of his deity and literally became, as the creeds tell us, fully man. Jesus became a man, just like you and me, a baby, helpless, um, learning how to talk, learning how to, to tie his shoes, going through um, the, their elementary school, which was called a pedagogue. It, was, it would be attached to the synagogue there, and the rabbis and, and some others would come and teach the children. And, and you know, according to the, the rabbis of those days, the things that they've written for us, they say that a child should be reading the Bible by five, and by ten they should understand and know the commandments. And, and, of course, by 13, the bar mitzvah and all these different things that they would go through um, in those days. There would be a mezuzah outside of, of the house of every Jewish family. And, and, and the mother, it would be her job to raise the children in the scriptures. And so as they would leave the house, they would touch the mezuzah. Of course, you know, watching their father and their mother and their brothers and sisters, everyone would touch the mezuzah. Um, and, and the mezuzah was a little box with some scripture in it. May the Lord be with you and you're going out and you're coming in. You know, that, that scripture. And they would touch it and they would kiss their finger. And, and it was just surrounding their life. Everything that had to do with God and everything. Everything that had to do with knowing the scriptures and learning the scriptures, you're rising up and you're, you're going down and you teach these things to your children and they did those things. And so Jesus would have grown up in a house where not only did he go to pedagogue to the elementary school, 
But he also would have been taught by his mother. That was the primary teacher of children. Young children would be taught by their mother the scriptures that they might know. Much like Timothy was taught by his grandmother um, Eunice and his mother Lois or vice versa, however that is, you know. But, but that's, that's how it went in, in those days um, as, we look at, as we look at the Jewish culture. And so Jesus would have grown up with his parents and been taught the scriptures with, by his parents. And it says, verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. So interestingly, um, Joseph goes to the Passover feast and Mary goes with him. This was not required. It, were, it was certainly required for Joseph. Every year there'd be a caravan of men and some families who would travel to Jerusalem from Galilee to celebrate the Passover. And so they would get in this caravan, and it would be a great time. You know, everybody's heading that way. And so you get in this group of people, and you're making your way down. There's a 100-mile journey, so it's going to take some time. And you'd stop, and you have campfires, and you would sing songs, and you would share stories. And it would be a great time, a great time of the year where they all would go down, and they go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem swelled from about 600,000 people to well over a million during Passover. And so people from all over the world are coming in, all the way as far as Rome, maybe further, as far as Mesopotamia. They're, they're coming into the city and just it swells um, because it was a required feast. Now Joseph, obviously being devout in his worship of God and Mary as well, they made it a family event. And they would go down there. And, and this, um, of course, the law, again, would require Joseph to go. And the, the rabbinical law, which was different than God's law, but the rabbinical law stated that if a child was 11 years old, or at the latest 12, that they were required to go as well with their father. Why? To prepare themselves for um, the, the, their bar mitzvah. Because bar mitzvah means son of the commandments, right? And so at 13 they would go through this ritual of becoming bar mitzvah, which would mean now I'm a son of commandments. And that means I'm required to go to Jerusalem, required to participate in Passover, in, the, um, in, in Pentecost, and in the, the Festival of Booths. Those are things I'm required to do now as an adult man. And so at 12, 11 and 12, they should start going to, to be familiarized with those things so that when they're bar mitzvah, then they would be a part of that. And so they're following the commandment of Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16 and 17. It says this, three times a year, all your males, and this isn't just talking about adult males. It literally just means men, man, child, you know, probably not a toddler, but any, any male shall appear before the Lord, your God in the place, which he chooses at the feast of unleavened bread. The Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, Feast of Unleavened Bread is Passover, Feast of Weeks is Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord, which your Lord God, which your Lord God has given you. And so this is one of those um, things that really tied the children of Israel to the land of Israel, if you can imagine. If you're required three times a year, as a, and you know, Passover and Pentecost aren't too far away, so you're making two trips real close together. You're making these three times a year, you're going to go down to Jerusalem to celebrate these celebrations. It, it kind of helps to live in the land, right? It, it kind of helps to, and even though they're 100 miles away, could you imagine what it would have been like if you lived in Corinth or you lived in Rome? You know, when you had to make that journey, and honestly, tell you the truth, most of them didn't make it just because they didn't. It's just hard. 
too far away from re the religious activity or, or the rituals or whatever. And so they just kind of, kind of falls off. They lose their, their identity. But, but beyond that, there was also kind of a, a superstition when it came to the land of Israel. In fact, the rabbis would say to live in the land is as good as keeping all the commandments. And that's how important it was to them. And also they would say stuff like to be buried in the land is like being buried under the altar. Meaning if I'm buried in the land of Israel, I'm sure I'm going to have a place in heaven. That's, that's kind of just the way they thought. And so there was a lot of that pressure put on the people, superstition on the people. But certainly God wanted them to stay close because he wanted them to be separate, right? Separate from the world. Now, I think we can take this and, and kind of see the importance of it, not just for them, you know, and of course, not surrounding superstition or necessarily the temple or the, or the land of Israel. But isn't it important for us to stay close to the things of God? And not just for us, but also for our children and to raise them up in the things of God, to completely wash them with the things of God so that they, they are familiar with those things, that those things are habits in their lives so that that they know that's where they need to be and where they need to go. And that's, that's kind of what the, the point was. You know, as the children of Israel were supposed to be a light to the nations, as much as they were to be a light to the nations, they were also to be separate, to be holy unto the Lord. And so too it is for you and me. Now, one of the things that they would have come with is a lamb, this family... Um, any family who was coming down for the Passover would bring a lamb and they'd also bring an offering, an offering saying, hey, thank you so much, God, for all that you've blessed me with. And here's my yearly offering, Passover offering to say, thank you, God. You know, and that's what they would do. Now, you, you think about this, and I was thinking about last time we talked about Mary coming to the temple and how embarrassing it probably was that she would not be able to bring the offering that was prescribed, you know, remember we, we saw that in the, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 12, that they were to bring a lamb for the burnt offering and a turtle dove for the sin offering, you know, and, and, and so there, there, was, there was those, basically they were, they were bringing two turtle doves, which was the exception clause. If you can't bring a lamb, if you can't afford it, then you can bring two turtle doves. And so that's what they were bringing. But somebody reminded me after service last week, and I thought this was classic. They said, well, actually they did bring a lamb. The lamb. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, and I knew that was tongue in cheek, but actually really that's pretty true. And isn't it interesting that God wouldn't allow them to have the money to buy a lamb because they were bringing the lamb? I love it. I love that. It makes me bummed that I missed that. I mean, how cool, how powerful would that have preached last week? But so I don't miss a beat, this week they are bringing the lamb, right, to the Passover, which is pretty cool. And not only are they bringing the lamb, but the greatest treasure on all heaven and earth was Jesus Christ himself. And so they're coming up to the Passover, they're doing this. And of course, Passover was that celebration. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, when God brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And, and with 10 plagues, and the last plague being the death of the firstborn, that the death angel would come and he would pass over every house. And as he went into every house, he would kill the firstborn of every house. And it was basically a, a judgment of sin upon the land of Egypt. But for the Jews or for the, the Israelites, that they were to take a lamb, unspotted, an unblemished lamb, and they were to butcher it and put the, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the lentil, kind of in the, you know, across. 
and to go into the house and, and eat the Passover lamb with their family, with their shoes on their feet, with their staffs in their hands. And they have a whole script that they would go through and, and, and they would talk about all these things. And, and as they ate that, the death angel passed over and every house that had the blood covering it would be passed over, would be safe from the death. And there was death in every home in all of Egypt except for those who were of the children of Israel. And in the morning they got up with their bread that didn't have time to rise. It was unleavened and they took it with them and they went out with the mighty hand of God and went into the wilderness as they were delivered from the bondage of Egypt. Same thing with us. You know, we're Christians. We, we've come under the blood of the lamb and he has saved us. And, and we are on a mission to, to share the love of Jesus with the world as he, he has caused us to be covered by his blood and we are passed over when it comes to the, the burden or the, the sting of sin. You know, we, we're, we're delivered from the bondage of sin into um, freedom. And that's, that's what this all represents. And as Jesus comes to this Passover feast, how appropriate it was for him to be there. In verse 42, it says, And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Again, 12 years old would have been required of him by rabbinical law to be at this feast. And, and, and for this, for me, I, you know, looking at this passage, and I, I've never, I mean, I've taught through this before, and I've, I've considered this before, and I thought about this before, but no year has this been more real to me than, than a year where I've just had over the last year two 12-year-old boys. So much to say right now. <laughs> Not going to say it all. Okay. Now, let's just say it's kind of interesting to me that if they were to miss their 12-year-old boy for some time, is that such a bad thing? <laughs> he was like, MIA, yeah, you know? <laughs> oh, just kidding. But really, you know, I, I, if Jesus was anything like my boys, he would be walking down, he would be the most awkward sight. Here's Jesus walking down to Jerusalem in a high water robe with sandals that are brand new, but somehow he's already outgrown them. And yet, you know, for all of that, oh, and some strange little um, shadow on his upper lip and a very funny sounding voice as he's, as he's maturing. But, but really a mini man, you know, I mean, a man who, and, and this is one benefit that has been for having two 12-year-old boys in my house, is that there's a lot of yard work that could get done with those two boys. I mean, it's amazing. And my 15-year-old boy, actually, more them. But anyway, you, you, get, you get in there and you get the, you know, the wood picked up and you get the, you know, the weeds pulled out and, and just, I mean, it's amazing. You know, I'm just, I used to do all that stuff by myself, but as the kids are getting older, it's like, man, I got some, got some labor force here. Like, they're ready to keep going when I'm done. I love that. And I'm sure that there wouldn't have been any problem for them to make it down, um, for Jesus to make it down to Jerusalem. He had more energy than, than his parents if he wanted to go. It's not really fair. <laughs> you know, these are, these are just the life and times of a 12-year-old boy. But when it says according to the custom of the feast, this again apply that Jesus was, was actually required to go. And, and so he was. And, and yet, probably, as, as Mary and Joseph both going, um, that probably means the whole family went. And so, verse 43, it says, And when they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. How could they not know it? 
I, I mean, isn't that kind of crazy to think about? Like all of a sudden your son's gone and you, a whole day goes by and you didn't notice? I mean, 12-year-old boys are pretty independent, you know, and so I don't know. But I'm just trying to imagine this in my, in my head, and I'm just thinking through the scriptures and what would the circumstances have been like, you know, and I think it's good for us to meditate on scripture, especially stories like this, and, and to take what we know of the times and the things that are happening there and just kind of think through it. Well, it tells us in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, that Jesus has brothers and sisters. It, it lists them. It says James and Joseph, Judas and Simon and his sisters. And so Jesus has, what is it? Jesus, James, two, three, four, five, six, seven, if you count two sisters, but likely he had four or five sisters, right? And so you got a big family. So by the time that Jesus is 12, him being the oldest, and, and you know, they didn't, they weren't Americans. They didn't have family planning and contraceptives and things like that. They just, they had the kids. They just had them. Right? And so boom, 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 boom. Sometimes, you know, before you're done weaning and usually after you're done weaning. But they could have easily had a family of eight or, or even ten by the time that Jesus was twelve. I mean, that's a big family. Maybe some of them were even twins. But having a big family myself, I can imagine how one kid could sneak off undetected. Especially when that kid is one who's not known for causing any trouble. He's just kind of always there and never really very loud. But one thing I've noticed, and it doesn't matter if it's my most obedient or quietest child, whenever somebody is gone, like I'll come home and, and not realize, you know, I'm just come down and sit in the, in the dining room or in the living room or whatever, and, and I just notice that they're gone. Why do I notice that they're gone? Because it's quieter. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter who it is. It's just somehow quieter. There's less chaos in the house. And I look at my wife and I'm like, is somebody missing? Oh, yeah, yeah, Jaron went to, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Or even Isaiah, or it doesn't matter who it was. You know, oh, they're gone. Okay, so that's why it's so quiet in here. It's weird how just one child can change that whole dynamic. But, but to miss them, you know, that's, it's not abnormal. And, and for whatever divinely inspired reason, Jesus actually, think through the implications of this, he let them leave him. He, he let them go. He knew they were leaving. He understood the implications of that. And he let them leave without him. Now that troubles us. And I, I listen to commentaries and I've, I've read commentaries that kind of try to make it, you know, Jesus must have been doing this and his parents didn't realize. And now Jesus, he's old enough. I mean, he's been old enough to pursue them. You know, it's not like he couldn't catch up to them. I mean, goodness. And, and yet he let them go on purpose. Well, he lingered back. Now, this troubles us because as, as Christians, as parents, we might think, well, that means he was being disobedient to his parents. Now, I will say this. Jesus always obeyed and honored his parents. That is until his father told him to stay. Now, so we know the, we understand how biblically the, the pecking order goes. Mother always trumps child. Mother always trumps child. Father always trumps mother. And if your father is God, that trumps everything. 
<laughs> right? I mean, honestly, and, and, and here's the difference between you, child, who, uh, well, God told me to do it, to your parent, no, God told you to obey your mother and father, you know, to honor them and to submit to them. That's what you're supposed to do as a child. But this is different because Jesus' literal biological father, if you will, was the father, was God. And so his father tells him to stay. So weirdly, even though Mary may have felt dishonored by Jesus' stunt, he, he was compelled to do it because, dare I say, his real father told him to. You know, Jesus isn't always what we expect him. Even, even if we're familiar with, and I think sometimes we think, oh, we, we understand Jesus because I read this book on Jewish life or Jewish history or Jewish customs. But no matter what we know about Jewish life and Jewish customs and, and about the times of Jesus, we really, that really does not give us any clue into who Jesus was. It really doesn't. It might help us to understand the context in which things are happening. But reading Alfred Edersheim, who's, who's the far uh, most authority on these types of things, I've been reading The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which I didn't realize how much it was going to help me with, my gospel, my, with, with the Gospel of Luke, but it's been amazing to read it and kind of understand traditions during the time of Jesus. Um, he made an interesting observation that we should consider when we think about Jesus. And, and his point was, m as much as we kind of look at Jesus in, in, in his times to understand who he was, Jesus was nothing like his time or any other time. In fact, this is what he said. He said, and I quote, there is no similarity between Christ and his period. Never a man of that or any subsequent period spake like this man. Never a man lived or died as he. Assuredly, if he was the son of David, he also was the son of God and savior of the world. And to that point, as we look at Jesus and what Jesus said and did, it goes against the grain of our culture, it goes against the grain of his culture, and it goes against the grain of what we even know as of human nature. So when we think of Jesus, we can't pigeonhole him into a time or a period or even our own context. All those things really escape the reality of who Jesus was and what he did. And our attempt to do so will only endanger us into making some God or some idea of Jesus that is not biblical and, and really does not fit into the reality of who God was. He is completely separate and other than and any time we try to make Jesus what we think he should be, we're really just making an idol of a God in our own image rather than who Jesus truly is. And how do we learn about God? Uh, the only way that we can actually learn about who Jesus truly was is through his word and what his word reveals to us, which will give us a small sampling of who Jesus really is and, and really was. And, and the best way to know who Jesus was is to have a relationship with him and to walk with him, and to talk with him, and to be his friend, and to let him be your Lord, and your Savior, and, and to scour his word as he speaks to you by his Holy Spirit, and reveals himself more and more to you. Verse 44 says, but supposing him to have been in the company, so again, they're, they're traveling with this caravan, family and relatives, and strangers all from Galilee, going back up to to Drew, or up to, to Galilee, they went a day's journey and sought him amongst their relatives and acquaintances. So they, they, didn't, they didn't think twice about not seeing him for an entire day. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. 
<laughs> when you have a lot of kids, it's not too rare, you know, again, to notice it's much quieter or whatever. But on a different level, I wonder, you know, uh, for us, just to make application in this for us, I, I wonder how many church services go on not realizing that Jesus is not amongst us. Or how many family prayers, or how many family meals, or how many plans that we make for our future, or our daily lives, that we just move forward not realizing that Jesus isn't, isn't with us. That, that somehow, at some point, we left off following him, and leaving him behind just started to go our own direction. And certainly in the stress of the time and things going on and kids running here and there and all these activities that are happening and, and you know, staying back from certain activities because, of course, you know, COVID and all that. How often do we just kind of go through our daily lives and not realize, wait a minute, I don't know the last time it was when I really felt the presence of God. Or I really sensed his pleasure upon me or, or any of those types of things. This is something I've been thinking a lot about lately, not just for myself, and certainly for myself, but for my family and for our church family. You know, we've been missing a lot of people lately. I mean, I think that as we, we realize what the last year has been like, you know, there were times when the church, it was just me and a few guys running sound and video, and you guys were all just sitting at home watching on, on your TV, hopefully. And, and still, because of there's danger still, you know, and I think that probably most of us have had COVID, and so we have a flock immunity. Is that what you call it in church? <laughs> we, we, have, <laughs> we have flock immunity, but uh, because uh, we have that. So, you know, a lot of people are coming back, and, and things are safer now, certainly, because we have so many people have had it already, so it's less likely to spread, and that's great. But a lot of people still staying back because they realize, well, I have a, an aged grandmother or, or my parents or whatever, or I myself maybe am aged and I don't want to, you know, unnecessarily expose myself to something that could be lethal. You know, and I, I get that. That's, that's important that we take safety precautions, certainly. But what happens when I, I, I make it a custom to not attend church anymore and now all of a sudden, it's just easier to watch it online. You know, it's, hey, you know, no big deal. We'll just turn it online. I'm not ready in time or I, I got up late or whatever. And just how easy it is just to get out of the pattern of assembling. This is why God would require these things oftentimes. But we, we have a relationship with God. So it's a little bit different in, in that we don't want you to come to church because you're demanded to. We want you to come to church because you want to be in the fellowship of the brethren. And as we think about church and the importance of it in our lives, you know, as, as, as it tells us in Hebrews to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together, and so much more as we see the day approaching and thinking about everything that's happening in the world right now, how, how urgent that should be for us. But what makes me scared, and, and I guess I shouldn't say scared, but what makes me pause and pray and, and think is, is how many people have just gotten completely out of the habit because they, they just watch it online now, but they don't have time to watch it during church, so they watch it later if they even watch it. See what I'm saying? It's easy to get out of pattern. And it's, it's easy because life happens, and I get that. But if we do that, are we leaving Jesus behind? And I think that's a, it's, an easy, it's an easy answer for each of us as we look at our lives and we look around and we realize, wait a minute, I haven't seen Jesus in a long time. 
And, and I really need to make sure that he's with me. Or, or should I say rather that I'm with him. In verse 45 it says, So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Well, that's good at least. <laughs> you know, he's been one pretty sought after little guy. I mean, a lot of attention has been given to Jesus. Of course, if the first ones to seek after him were the shepherds, right? They saw the angels, you know, let's find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Not long after that, he was sought after by Simeon who had waited so long that he wouldn't see, he wouldn't see death until he saw the Lord's Christ. And so Simeon, who has been watching for him, comes to in anticipation, being led by the Spirit into the temple, sees him, finds him, grabs him up, and prophesies over him. Of course, Anna as well. And then, of course, the wise men were seeking him. You know, of course, the, as, the, as the cliche goes, wise men still seek him. And Mary and Joseph, now being wise to his disappearance, are now seeking him. In a way, it's a metaphor for life. Because I think that every one of us is going to go through a stage at some point where we kind of leave. Where we kind of walk away from that intimacy with Jesus for, for whatever it is. Something shiny, something sexy, something tempting. Or maybe just life itself. Everything's just cloudy and, and confusing and I'm just so busy. And it's so easy just to kind of walk away from where Jesus was. You know, there's a whole church that did this in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, that church of Ephesus. Man, it was a church who had everything happening that was supposed to be happening. They didn't put up with those who were evil. They cling to the word. They did all the things that they were supposed to do. But Jesus says, I have this just one thing against you. You've left your first love. In all of their churchianity and all the things that they were doing and everything orthodox, they forgot about Jesus. This isn't about doing church. This is about having a relationship with Jesus. It's about knowing him. It's about following him and having intimacy with him. How do I know that I've left Jesus behind? It's a there's a really easy litmus test for this. Just think about how you look at other people and how you love other people. And when you think about how you look and love at other people, that's how you're going to love Jesus. It's always a reflection because he puts his love in our hearts and he sheds abroad his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And, and my love for people is a direct reflection of my relationship with God. And if I'm becoming angry and cynical and if I watch too much news, that's certainly how I become. <laughs> then I realize, wait a minute, I'm leaving Jesus behind and I'm forming enemies in my mind. People that Jesus died for. And how is, the world going to how is the church going to change the world if we hate them? God so loved the world that hated him that he gave his only begotten son. And if I have that love in my heart, then I know I'm close to Jesus. It's an easy way to tell. John tells us that if you, if you say you love God or you hate your brother, you're a liar. And so that's, you know, it's an easy litmus test to tell. Do I love Jesus or am I, am I forsaking him? I can imagine Mary and Joseph being a bit anxious at this loss. <laughs> Joseph, we lost God's son. <laughs> it's a big deal. You know, I mean, this isn't like losing James. I mean, certainly that would be horrible, but this is God's son. <laughs> Waiting for an angel to show up in uniform. Excuse me, ma'am. What did you do with God's son? <laughs> uh, he was around here somewhere. I'm not sure. Putting out the Amber Alert, we saw a pale horse with a black chariot on the license plate, 1J666. It was going that way. I'm sure he had, you know. Oh, man. 
kind of important to keep track of God's son. You think, well, we're kind of obligated to do this. Verse 46 is so, so it was that after three days, oh my goodness, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Lost kid for three days. Uh, you can imagine how frantic Mary must have been. I'm sure she was sure that he'd been kidnapped. You know, I mean, you, we go through this, right? Our kids, you know, they're driving for the first time and they don't come back home when they're supposed to be back home. And you're sure that they're kidnapped or in a ditch somewhere dying and you're just like, you know, stressed out. It was even worse back when we were kids because they didn't have cell phones or anything, you know? Of course, nowadays, if they don't contact you, everybody has a cell phone. So if they're gone just a little bit longer than they should be, then you get, you know, you get upset, right? And, and you can imagine three days looking for Jesus. And, and they, they finally go back to the temple, a big city of Jerusalem, strangers from all over the world visiting. You know, who knows how, what kind of creepy people, you know, are around, the giant crowds like that. Wasn't normal wasn't normal for Jesus. He'd never done anything like this before. This is a parent's worst nightmare. Finally, they get to the temple. They see him calmly, joyfully, sitting there amongst the rabbis, asking questions, answering questions. Not saying, can you help me find my mommy and dad? No, just answering and asking questions. And everybody's amazed. Like, you know this kid? Wow. And Mary... I was just thinking about this. Okay, in our context, let's say that one of my 12-year-old boys was, you know, lost for three days, and Shannon and I show up, and they're just calmly sitting, talking to people in the park, and, and it's just like a good old time. I would have to do everything to restrain her from just taking that kid out. Yeah. <laughs> At that point, the, the level of worry and the anxiety and the relief, but also the, oh, what do you... You know, and you kind of get that from Mary a little bit. Um, before we get to that, th this also got me thinking, too, about, you know, this, this idea that we could lose Jesus, you know, lose him in the midst of our Christian walk, and we could leave him behind. Where is it that you go to find him when you lose him? Well, I, I love that they found him at the house of the Lord. And they went to the house of the Lord, and that's where Jesus was. He's always going to be doing what his father's doing. And oftentimes, that's what people do. They, they lose Jesus. They, they, they leave him somewhere in their life. They walk away. They backslide, whatever you want to call it. And, then, and they're like, I need to get God back into my life. And so what do they do? They show up to church. And oftentimes, the result of that is just tears the whole service. You know, it's not anything that I say or, or anything that's saying necessarily. It's everything. It's, it's God's presence. And oh my gosh, what have I been missing out on? What have I done to myself? How could I allow this to happen to me that I get so far away from God? And, and so to come back to those things that are familiar and the praise of his people and just to be a part of that again is overwhelming to the saint who's been lost. And so certainly it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that they would find him in his father's house doing what Jesus is supposed to be doing. And he's always going to be doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's always going to be following his father. I suppose that when we lose Jesus, the best advice is the advice that we can get um, that was given to Ephesus, the church that left him behind, the church that left their first love. This is what Jesus tells them about that. In, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 2, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do your first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
And so to, to go back and to find Jesus where you left him, he's always going to be where you left him, right? To go back and have that, that time. I don't know, for, for me, the, the, the sweet times of, of intimate fellowship with Jesus, you know, I just think back to my youth group days and the songs that we sang and the scriptures that the Lord showed me, you know, as a brand new Christian and to go back and read those things. To go back and read the books I was reading at that time, bring back those memories, to, to sing those songs. I love that Shane and Shane came out with that new album um, about all the cheesy old 90s worship songs that we sang in youth group because those things, man, they take me right back. And Shannon and I will just lay in bed and we'll cry and we'll sing and just, it's beautiful. Just to go back and, and to do those first works again. Why? Because it stirs up the feelings of your first, your first betrothals with him and, and how that was so, so important to you. So Jesus is just sitting there with these great scholars, rabbis, asking questions and answering their questions. Verse 47, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. This, this should have made them wonder. Because it tells us in Malachi chapter 3, behold, I send my messenger, verse 1, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek. Of course, all of Israel was seeking him will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, of course, I think that this is speaking not of this event, but really when Jesus comes to his temple at the beginning of his ministry and cleanses it. Remember, kind of violent, you know, tipping over tables and, and you know, saying this is a house of prayer. You made it a den of thieves. And certainly it's referring to Jesus coming suddenly to his temple on the day of, of um, Palm Sunday when Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the Messiah on the donkey as prophesied in Zechariah 9. He comes into Jerusalem and then he goes into the temple at the end of his ministry. And what does he do again? He turns over the money changers tables and he up, causes upheaval in the whole temple. He's going to come suddenly to his temple, but here they have these foreshadowings. Not just this, but Simeon and his proclamation, I have seen the Lord's Christ. And now here he is, 12 years old. Once again, some of those same people would have been in leadership and there at that time. Now they're seeing this boy who has these amazing answers to these questions. And these amazing questions that he asks. Such insight, such, such intimacy with the scriptures. Now, of course, Jesus, here 12 years old, in this temple, you know, speaking these things, Mary and Joseph seeing him, um, you know, it, it had to be a witness to them. And I believe that Jesus does this for all of us. Everyone who's ever lived in the world, certainly everyone here, especially everyone here. Why do I say especially everyone here? Because we have... YouTube videos, churches, Bibles on our shelves, um, street preachers. We have everything you could possibly imagine. And we have so much light in America when it comes to the gospel and the truth of God's word that there really for us is absolutely no excuse. Anybody in our culture has ready access to the gospel. What about the person who lives on the island, you know, in some remote place in dark Africa or, or somebody who's never heard the gospel? Do you realize that Jesus reaches out to everyone? It, it tells us that actually in John chapter 1, verse 9 through 12, it says, it calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. 
He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. So he comes to every single person. He shines light into every person who comes into the world. He reveals himself in some way to every single person who comes into the world. It doesn't matter who they are. Oftentimes, and even his own, did not receive him, did not want to hear it. You think about people who live out in the jungle and, and for millennia they have, they have lived out there in darkness. And why? Because they don't want to know the truth. Did you know that most of those tribes, they remember through their traditions the flood of Noah? They remember all those things. They remember the true God who they used to worship, but now they know they worship demons. They know that they've lost the path. And that's true for the Wa, for the Modalones, for any of these groups in, in indigenous tribes throughout the world. And, and the reality is, is they just don't want to know God. They don't care enough to seek after him, even though his light shines in every single one of them. But when somebody does care, that's when God moves heaven and earth and brings a missionary and, and angels come and even tell them the missionary is coming to you. Or they have prophecies in their culture that a white man's going to bring books and he will bring the true God, the knowledge of the true God to you. And this is, this is universal around the world. If you're interested in that subject, read Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. It's, it's phenomenal. But he makes himself known, not just to us in our everyday lives, but to every single person who's ever born in this world, the light of Jesus shines into them. And most people love darkness rather than light because they don't want to hear it. That's just the reality. And that's true in our culture as well. And so in verse, 20, verse 48, it says, So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, you have, uh, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Again, you know, restrain herself. There's rabbis around. <laughs> you know, got to save face a little bit. Um, I feel bad for Mary because she had to have been worried sick. But as much as Mary was the mother of Jesus, Jesus was her Lord. And, and, he, and yeah, he disappointed her. And it's not the last time that he's going to disappoint her. Jesus doesn't always meet her expectations, but he always fulfills whatever his purpose is. And that's what he's always going to be doing. And so as Christians, even though things aren't going the direction that we hope them to be or, or the way that we wanted them to go, we have to realize that he is in control. And whatever it is that he leads us into, even though it looks like a dark hole, and this is what I really wanted, it's always going to be for our good and for his glory. It's always going to be for our good and his glory. And sometimes that is a very difficult sell. I just, I just this image of, of um, Pilgrim's Progress where he, there was this easy path and then there was this difficult way and he was told to go the difficult way. And he's like, yeah, but this is so much easier. And so he goes up the difficult way. It turns out the difficult way was easier and the, the beautiful open path was harder. And that's always true. It's always true. Verse 49, it says, And he said to them, Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? This is interesting. Your, your father and I have sought you diligently. Why have you done this to us? And then he says, you've got to know I must be about my father's business. The only words recorded of Jesus right here. That's all that he says in, this entire, um, in his entire childhood that we know of. And this is the problem with step families. Right here. <laughs> you know, dad says one thing. Mom says another thing. Everybody's confused. Man. And you thought your family was complicated. Jesus was letting Mary know that his obligation was to his father 
and he was obligated to do um, that over what he was obligated for her. And this is difficult for us too. I think, that, and it's the same for us too. Our obligation is to God. And that obligation to God as a Christian is more important than our obligation to our spouse, to our children, to our parents, to our friends, to our relatives, to our larger families, to our governments, or to ourselves. Our obligation is to him. And as a Christian, I am to follow him. In fact, Jesus said this. He said this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 38. He says, Do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be of those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow, me, follow after me is not worthy of me. In other words, in, in, he who does not give up his own life is not worthy of me. And therefore, Jesus becomes more important. And not that we're not to love our father and our mother and our spouses and our kids. We're to love them with all of our heart, but we have to always love God more. There's always going to be a temptation to love something else more. But what are we exchanging it for? Right? I was just having a conversation with a guy right before service, and he was telling me how this person had given up God for something in their life, and, and how crazy that is, if you really think about the implications of that. What is the man going to exchange for his soul? Is there anything worth more than eternal life? Is there anything more, worth more than your soul? Any desire, any pleasure, any precious that you could possibly desire? that's going to be more important than your soul? So many people leave Jesus behind because their family doesn't approve. Their wife doesn't approve. Their heart doesn't approve. I have these desires. I know that the Bible doesn't say good things about that, and that's where I'm going to go because how foolish. How foolish. What stands out in this passage is really interesting. Mary says, your father and I. And he says, I have to do my father, my father's business. In other words, Joseph, you're not my father. <laughs> you're not my real dad. <laughs> no, not really. Jesus didn't have that attitude. But in a way, he was making his obligations clear to Mary and Joseph. This is where my obligations lie. This is where my heart is to do my Father's will. And certainly, as a Christian, that's if my heart is not there, then I need to do whatever it takes to get my heart into that place where it's like, God, whatever you want in my life, I just want to follow you. It's not about playing a Christian game or, or going to church every Sunday just so we can go to church every Sunday as a family. It's about knowing God. It's about having a relationship with Him. And it's about His will in my life. And nothing is as important as that. Nothing is as important as that. Verse 50, it says, But they did not understand the statement which He spoke to them. <laughs> I wonder how often they didn't understand what Jesus was trying to say. I'm not sure what that's about. Me either. Just don't ask questions. <laughs> You, you would have thought, and, and I think because of the apocryphal stories, we just kind of have this fanciful idea of, of, what Jesus, um, of what Jesus was, you know, or who he was as a kid. You, you would have thought that they would have just been like, oh, of course. 
Duh, why, wouldn't, why didn't we think of that? Of course you'd do whatever God tells you to do and not what we tell you to do. But I, in a way, I'm glad that Mary and Joseph didn't get it because so often I don't get it either. I, I, just, I just don't. Just because we know that God works everything to, good, to, to the good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose does not mean that it's going to be easy or that it's going to make sense. And oftentimes it doesn't. And, and that's where my relationship with God comes into play because I have, to, I have to be able to trust him when things don't make sense. And if I haven't built that relationship with him to where when things go off to the side or I have this desire and I know it's not right, it's, it's so much easier to say no to that and to follow Jesus no matter where he goes if, if I have that relationship with him. And we question God sometimes. I think that's natural. And when we question God, we just have to get before him and say, God, I don't understand this, but you're just going to have to give me a piece about it. And you know that he does that as we go through the turmoil of not understanding what God's doing. He gives us a peace that passes understanding, which means we still don't understand, but we have peace through the midst of it. He, he promises that to all of his, his children. And the other thing that this implies is that Jesus wasn't too out of the ordinary. Now, I, I think that this is a, an important point to make. You think about, you know, a Jesus who touches a bird made out of clay and it comes alive, or a Jesus who's talking when he's a toddler. You, you would think that if that was the case, or any of those things were the case, Mary and Joseph would just be going through life like, the boy wonder, what's he going to do next? You know, I mean, well, did you see what he did yesterday? Oh, I were just always constantly amazed with this kid. He stayed back in Jerusalem. We should have known. Jesus always pulling the tricks. No. He was just an average kid. He grew up. Nothing really special about him. They were probably kind of shocked that they didn't see any, him do anything spectacular. It's almost as though Jesus was trying to make himself of no reputation. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, isn't that what it says? He grew up like a normal child, learn the scriptures like a normal child, do everything like a normal child, and then one day, out of the blue, which completely shocked them, he stays behind and says, I must be about my father's business. This has nothing in correspondence to the way that he's acted up to this time, and so they didn't get it. They didn't understand. Why would he act like that? Verse 51, it says, Then they went down, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. So he says this, and yet at this, from this point on, of course, his father's will was him just to submit himself to his parents completely as, they, as he grew up until the time he would start his public ministry. He just submit himself to them. Do you think that Jesus was smarter than them? <laughs> yeah. Do you think he knew better than them? Of course he did. But this is a, a true example of what humility is, is somebody who, who maybe knows more, who is smarter, who is stronger, who is whatever, and yet humbles themselves and submits themselves to those who are over them. And this is true with a parent and a child. This is true with an employee and a boss. Man, you may know way more than your boss, but it's going to say a lot about your character. If no matter how smart you are, how strong you are, how much you think you know, if you submit yourself to that person that maybe doesn't know as much as you. And, and that's really going to be more of a witness when it comes right down to it. And Jesus is our example of, of this in our lives. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. 
it, it, it's, it's pretty, pretty normal that Jesus would grow in stature. You know, he's going to get taller. Pretty, pretty normal that he'd have favor with men. But the other things are what wig me out. That he increased in wisdom. That he increased in favor with God. Isn't that strange? I just don't think, you know, and, and again, just speaking to the fact that Jesus was so much more normal than we, we kind of maybe fantasize him to be as a child. He actually humbled himself that much, setting aside his deity, even though he still had every right to it. He set, him, he set it aside so much that he could actually progress in his knowledge and his behavior would be favored for God. Remember God on a couple occasions at his baptism and also um, at his transfiguration said, this is my beloved son who am I, whom I am well pleased. Kind of gives you the idea that Jesus did things throughout his life that pleased the father. In fact, I think everything Jesus did pleased the father. But it also kind of helps us to understand that Jesus went through temptation and struggle just like all of us do. In fact, the Bible tells us that in Hebrews chapter 4. It says we don't have a high priest who cannot identify with our weakness. He was tempted in all ways that we are, yet without sin. He felt what it was like to struggle through the pain of difficulty and, and disappointment. He felt what it was like to be tortured and, and hung on a cross. He, he understood what it was like to be tempted by the devil. And yet all without sin. He pleased the Father. In fact, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And so it is with you and me. We learn obedience to God and to trust God as we go through difficulties in our life because we find that God is faithful. Jesus is our example. And that's what Paul's trying to get through to us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, when he says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, there it is, of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God will, has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is going to be the lot of every single man, woman, and child in this earth. They are all going to bow the knee to Jesus, whether they like it or not, and say, you are Lord. And the question I have for you is, are you going to do that now when you have an opportunity to do it freely and volitionally to say, yes, Jesus, yes, you are Lord. I want to follow you. Or are you going to wait to the day of your condemnation and bow the knee before you're condemned? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a big question for each of us to ask. And for those of us who are following Jesus and maybe have stopped following him somewhere along the way or started taking another path, just a, a detour along the side, are you going to allow Jesus to stay lost? Or like Mary and Joseph, are you going to diligently seek him? Because the Bible tells us that those who diligently seek him will find him if you search with all your heart. 
I don't want us to lose Jesus. I don't want you to lose Jesus. I want you to follow him with your whole heart. That you would experience the joy of your salvation. That you would experience all that Jesus has for you as you walk in a relationship with him. Because there's nothing more wonderful than that. Amen.